and move that soil around, and guess what? It's going to be uncomfortable. I used to work as a landscaper, and every once in a while, we did have to transplant trees. And let me tell you, that was hard work. But I think it was probably harder on the trees than it was for the human beings, because in order for you to move the trees, you actually have to dig around it, and you have to cut some of those roots that are being extended around. And that causes some damage to the roots. But then you, turn, you put it into a new soil area, you give it some brand new beautiful treatment, and you allow the water to, to put that soil together and create a new environment for that tree. And as those wounds which needed to happen for it to be transplanted recover, they begin to send out new roots and stronger roots because that soil is actually more healthy and it's more nutritious for the plant itself. But it's not easy. Uh-oh. Asma, could you uh, click back onto the PowerPoint slide? I'm not being able to advance. There we go, perfect. So, when we mess with the soil, we also see that the, vine, the vineyard manager was saying something else. He was gonna throw some fertilizer on the soil. Do you guys know what fertilizer is? Especially 2,000 years ago? It's poop. What Jesus is saying in this parable is that if you are a tree that is not bearing fruit, one of the ways that you can be redeemed or being able to be grown into more life is that if Jesus throws some crap your way. No, legitimately, it's true. We have trials. We have some difficulty in our lives. And sometimes those challenges are in our lives specifically because they are in a place to allow us to grow. And we can take the nutrients, we can take those challenges and be drawn closer to God so that that can actually fertilize our spiritual lives, so that we can be drawn closer to Jesus, so that we can get his life flowing through our veins, and so that we can produce the fruit that he's calling us to produce. And it comes through crap. It comes through crap. We get fertilized. So if you get dumped on sometimes, consider that maybe this is some fertilizer coming into your life. Consider that Jesus is working through the trials, through the hardships of your life, to try to make you grow, to make you more fruitful, and see where he is working. Look for Christ in the circumstances. He can and he will heap fertilizer again. Sorry, maybe my battery is not working, but I can't. Can you press next, please? And again, this goes back to the idea of discipline as well, because in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 through 8, you can write that down if you want to and read it later, but Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 through 8, speak specifically about difficulties and trials that God gives us in our lives to be able to discipline us for our good. So bear that in mind the next time some challenging situations come into your life. So we get the trees. 
Next, we get the butterflies. Wait, what butterflies? There's no butterflies in this section, is there? Well, not really butterflies, but the butterfly effect. So the next two parables that we see in Luke chapter 13 are the parable of the yeast, which would be up here if our slides were working today, and the parable of the mustard seed. Skip, 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 skip. All right, so we're almost there. And sorry about the technical difficulties, everyone. Okay, the butterfly effect. Luke chapters 13, 18 through 21, the mustard seed and the yeast. Small, tiny little things that can transform the world. This is what the kingdom of God, Jesus says, what the kingdom of God is like. And you'll notice that when Jesus is talking about the mustard seed, it is a single mustard seed. One small, tiny little thing that someone just chucks into a field. And next thing you know, that whole tiny little grain of mustard seed grows up into this huge plant and transforms that garden. Again, it's like this little bit of yeast thrown into 50 pounds of flour. And the person works through it. And that lady kneads the dough and turns this flat white material with a little bit of water that turns into paste into this beautiful batch of bread that brings breath and life and fullness into this slurry so that it actually can be eaten and enjoyed. That is the kingdom of heaven. You see, when we are at work, when we are in our daily lives, even the small, seemingly insignificant things that we do or not do, these things can have a huge impact on the kingdom. So the next time you give a glass of water to somebody in need, the next time you say hi to a stranger, the next time you buy somebody a meal or give them a hug when there's no coronavirus. You are doing kingdom work. You are presenting the gospel in your actions to the world around. Because what I've said before, but I'll say it again, we are living in a world full of fear and anxiety, and it is a very challenging time in this world right now. And what we as the church need to be able to do is to change that narrative, to provide that source of hope, to provide that source of clarity and purpose and joy to the world. Because guess what? We have the hope. We know the answer to life's challenges, and we know how the story ends. Amen? What about the people outside? Do they know that at the end of this age, we will stand before the great throne of God and that those who are following Him will be able to go into eternal happiness with Him? And that all pain, all sorrow, all challenges, all struggles will be done over and completely gone away with? Do they know that? It's here in Thailand. Do they know that? By your small deeds, we create a doorway. We create an opening in those barriers to be able to have those conversations. You see, Jesus... Oh, Jesus rarely does 
big flashy things in his ministry. Take a look. Read through the Gospels. You'll notice he goes below the radar. He is this stealth ninja working as God. He became a man. He became a carpenter. He died on a cross. If you were a person in Israel who thought that their Messiah, their Savior was coming to redeem them, the people in Israel at that time were thinking that this Messiah would come with a huge host of armies to overthrow Rome and to create this wonderful kingdom of Israel over and over again that it would never be conquered. But Jesus came with a saw, and he came with 12 dudes, and he walked along the roads, and then he died on a cross, the worst possible death, the most shameful way to die. But through that, these small things, seemingly small things, the world has been transformed. The death that Jesus died, three days later, the huge flashy thing actually occurred. He rose again three days later and proved that he had the victory over sin and death and struggle and hardship. Amen? So, we need to make every effort, Jesus says, to go through the narrow door Make every effort, because many will try, but only few will be successful. Have you thought about that before? That this is a small, tiny, narrow passageway? And that Jesus says, even in this parable, that there are some people who will complain and like say, but, 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 Jesus, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say at the last day, I don't know who you are or where you came from. Get away from me, you evildoers. Just because you come to church, just because you listen to a sermon, just because you agree with the things that are being said about Jesus, doesn't guarantee your salvation. The Bible tells us that the only way to be saved is to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And what does Lord mean? It means He is your master. It means you follow Him. It means what He says is what you do. And this is not just a mental thing. This has to be something that we live and act and breathe and walk out day in and day out. Because faith without deeds the epistle that James wrote to the churches in James chapter 2 says faith without deeds is dead. So show me your works by your faith, and that will be a living faith. As we make every effort to go through that narrow door, take a look at these Scriptures, James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17, which I just referred to, but also Philippians 2, verses 12 to 15, which is where Paul tells the church in Philippi to work out your faith in fear and trembling, but it is God who works through you to accomplish these things. You see, it's not our efforts. We are not the ones who have to do all of these things by ourselves. No, indeed, especially in John chapter 15, we get the true picture that if we are connected to Jesus, if we are connected and spending time with our Savior, being in His presence, being renewed by Him day by day, that His life will flow through us and He will empower and enable us to do all of these things. We're just the vessels. 
we're the branches. The sap comes through the, the actual trunk, the vine, and the fruit gets produced. We're just the branch. So remember that apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. Apart from Jesus, you cannot go through that narrow door. Apart from Jesus, we cannot represent Jesus to the world. And last, well, mostly last but not least, we have this idea of being too busy for the banquet. This is in Luke chapter 14. There's this party going on that uh, Jesus says that this guy put in, and he wanted some friends to come over to be able to eat a wonderful celebratory meal, and everyone who was invited decided that they couldn't be bothered. Imagine that. Put yourselves in the shoes of this banquet host. You've created this wonderful party. You've sent out the invitations. You wrote these invitations. Everybody knows what's going to be happening, when it's going to be happening. And then when you say, okay, the food's on. Oh, um, I just bought a new condo. I'm going to go take a look at the carpet. Sorry, can't come and eat with you. Or, oh, I just bought a new car. I want to go test drive it right now. Sorry, dude, I'm not going to go and party with you and celebrate with you on this day. Or third, the third excuse that Jesus gives sounds a little bit better. It's, well, I just got married, and I'm going to stay home because of that. Now, the thing that you have to realize is that back 2,000 years ago when this parable was being presented to the people, the idea of a banquet was a big deal. You only had two meals every day, and this meal, this banquet, happened in the evening after a long day's work. If you were invited to a banquet, you got a handwritten invitation, and that was not cheap back in the day because no one had printers, and ink was scarce, and there was no such thing as paper. So you had to actually have what was parchment, which was what was dried like animal skin, and you had to write it by hand or hire someone to do it to give to your friends. And it was considered a huge honor to be invited by someone to go celebrate with them at their house. These things also happened in the evening, which means it's after the day's work. You're tired, the, the sun's going down, you want to be able to rest and say it was a very good day. If you refused, if you refused, it was like a slap in the face. Somebody took the time to invite and to prepare a meal for you, and then you say, oh, no thanks. Back in Palestine, where the Jews were, this was an honor-shame society. And to be honored meant you got a higher elevation in social status. But to be shamed or to be dishonored was like be having somebody throw poop in your face. So if this person went through the effort to honor you to come to this wonderful banquet and get all this food ready for you, and then all of a sudden you say, oh, no, I'm going to go check out this new condo I bought, or, oh, no, I'm going to go check out this new, this new machinery I purchased for my, my business, even though it's after hours. This is the time when you're supposed to be eating. What are you saying to this person? Are you saying that, your property is more important? 
Are you saying that your business ventures are more important? Are you saying that your recreation time is more important than respecting and honoring the person who has respected and honored you? And that last one, this idea about being, uh, b- being just recently married, this one's a little bit more tricky because in Jewish culture, there was this law in Deuteronomy, I think, chapter 14 or 24, uh, where, chapter 24, yeah, 24 verse 5, where there was this rule that said, as soon as you got married, the husband and wife had this get-out-of-jail-free card for one year. You didn't have to go to war. You didn't have to go away from your family. You had no real social obligations because you were supposed to spend that year together to cement the foundation of your relationship. So this last excuse where this guy says he got married within the past year sounds legit, but why wouldn't he just bring his wife along? Why not? Was it because he didn't actually really want to go and wanted to sound religious? To say, well, I'm honoring God by not going, but in reality, I'm spitting in your face. And if Jesus says that the two greatest commandments are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, strength, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself, do you think Jesus would be okay with having someone spit in someone else's face? It's hard to swallow. It's something to think about. Or was it the opposite? Maybe his wife didn't want to go. Seems like a a legitimate excuse to not go. Seems like legit. And maybe in a normal situation it would be, but this is a parable. And this parable is talking about this banquet holder being God the Father, who is inviting us to be in this celebration with Him. And these excuses are coming and saying, hey, you know what? Uh, My property, my land is too important. I'm going to go take care of that. My business ventures, my social responsibilities are more important. I'm going to go take care of that instead of spending time in my relationship with Jesus, with the Father. My family is more important than my relationship with Jesus. My religion My religious activities are more important than me spending time with Jesus. And we see that the the person who is holding this feast is so incensed and upset that he goes out and invites everyone who is willing to come so that the people who dishonored him would not even get a chance. So we get to the very end of Luke chapter 14, and we read the verses that Carla read earlier today. What is the cost of following Jesus? Jesus says these very, very strong and very, very strange words in context with all of these parables that we have seen so far. He says, if you do not hate your mother, your brother, your father, father, your sister, your husband, your wife, your family, even your own life. You are not worthy to be called his disciple. (laughs) 
wait a minute, this is Jesus, this is God, this is the one who the Bible says is love. What is he saying here? And see, the the thing that we have to understand is this notion of hatred that we have today is very different from what was being talked about by Jesus in this passage in Luke chapter 14. You could probably think better of how hatred as a concept worked for the, the Jewish people at that time as thinking about what it would be like to drink orange juice after brushing your teeth. Yes, Megan, exactly. Everyone has probably done it. You brush your teeth, oh, it feels also very good, and then, oh, I want to drink some wonderful, beautiful juice. Ugh, that's disgusting! And it really is. The difference is that the orange juice is good. Orange juice is valuable. It's delicious. It's wonderful to have. But in the context of having brushed your teeth, it now becomes something you want to avoid. And I'm not saying, and I'm not saying that Jesus is saying that we should be avoiding our family relationships or avoiding taking care of ourselves. No, the difference is that when Jesus says that he's calling us to be his disciple, he's saying that he needs to come first, that our love for him needs to look like brushing teeth in comparison to our love for others which would be like orange juice, which would be our love for ourselves, which would be like orange juice. If we have to choose, we start with Jesus because we know that he loves us, he loves our family, he loves our friends, he loves the world, and that we have confidence that when we are following him and that we trust him, that all of these things will be taken care of by him because he is truly the Lord over all. And he says to us that if we seek his kingdom and his righteousness first, all of these things will be added unto us. Jesus is saying that you must be willing to brush your teeth even if there is a jug of orange juice right in front of you. And that might be hard to swallow, pun intended. That might be hard to swallow, but I think there are some people in our congregation who get this a little bit more intuitively and have experienced this a little bit more. For those of us who have come from a Western world and North American background, this seems very foreign. But for those of us in this congregation or those that we may know who come from a Muslim background belief, or those of us or those that we know who come from a Buddhist background belief, they literally have had to choose between following Jesus and being part of their own family. They have literally had to choose between following Jesus and risking their lives. They've literally had to choose between following Jesus and giving up their entire wealth, their entire fortune, all that they had. Are you and I willing to be able to do that? Can we learn from our Muslim background believer friends and brothers and sisters? Can we learn from our Buddhist background believers, brothers and sisters? That this cost to follow Jesus, yes, it can potentially be high, but Jesus redeems all things, and he says that what we do for him will be all worked out for the good of us who are following him.
And this even comes with our own life. So what is the cost of taking this crosswalk, of picking up our crosses and following Jesus? No, there is no irony in the fact that Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me, because he knew very well that he was going to be picking up his own cross and dying the death that he did so that others might live. If Jesus is asking us to follow him, He's also asking us to follow him to the point of doing the very same things that he did, to be willing to put our own lives on the, lives, on the line for others so that they may be able to have a relationship with Jesus as well, so that they may be able to be free from the burden of guilt and shame, so that they may be able to have this restored relationship with the Father, so that the eternal consequences of the people who do not know, will, they will have a chance to be able to know who this Father is and to live free from sin, to be with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in perfect harmony forever in eternity. So who are you following? Really? Who are you following? If you can't do these things, if you can't choose Jesus over family, friends, money, business, relationships, leisure, sleep, work, are you really a disciple? Are you really a follower of Jesus? And now I'm not saying that this is 100% of the time because this goes back to the beginning of the tree. We do have seasons where we cannot produce fruit for one reason or another. But thanks be to Jesus that he has given us the Holy Spirit so that we are not left as orphans, but that he enables us and empowers us to be able to do these things that we otherwise could not be able to do. That he has mercy and grace on us and that we are works in progress, that we have not arrived, but that at the very end, when all is said and done, when Jesus looks at you on his great white throne of judgment on the last day, can he say to you, well done, good and faithful servants. Come and share in my blessing. Are you willing and able to do that? And that comes to the last part of the scripture that Carla read, counting the cost. This is no easy thing. To be a follower of Jesus means that we will be encountering suffering. That's a guarantee. The New Testament says it all over the place. It means sacrificing things for the sake of the kingdom. It means going through struggle. It means engaging in the hardship of the world so that we can be the salt and the light and the hands and the feet of Jesus to a hurting and suffering world. This is not a light decision. If you can't do these things, you really can't be a follower, a disciple of Jesus. You are only fooling yourself, and you're kind of wasting your time. But keep an eternal perspective, because at the end of the day, we all know how this story finishes. 
Jesus says we have to be ready and willing to give our all. Why would you pretend to be a Christian? The Apostle Paul says that we as Christians, if this is not real, we are the most to be pitied because of the amount of difficulty and trials and problems that we have to live through. If this is not true, you're wasting your time. Go do something else because this is not a fun thing to do. To be a follower of Jesus is challenging, it's hard, it costs but eternally it's worth it. And that is a sobering thought. If anything takes priority over your relationship with Jesus, Luke chapter 14, Jesus says very clearly that you are not fit to follow him. If you choose to let those things stay in the way, if you choose to let those things stay, Allow him, if you are in those seasons, to work in the soil of your life. Allow him to stretch and to overturn that environment and where you're living. Because if you allow him to work that soil to disrupt your life, yes, it will be challenging. Yes, it will be difficult. Yes, it will be hard. But your roots will be able to grow. The water of life will be able to seep in and transform you and reinvigorate you and give you that passion and that joy and that fruit that he's calling you to produce. Taking the crosswalk is not comfortable. Expect to be stretched. Those roots in the ground, they are going to be shaken up. Some of them are going to be cut. Your soil is going to be turned over, which means the sources of your identity, the sources of your foundation and your security, sometimes may be upset. Expect it. Be prepared for it. Know that that is just a temporary thing in light of eternity. Expect that there will be some situations where you get crap thrown your way. And recognize that Jesus is doing this for your good that some of these things will be done to prune and to shape you and to enliven and enrich your life so that you can look more like Jesus in the end. And I want to close with a couple portions of Scripture. John chapter 16, verses 33. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world, but be courageous. I have conquered the world, says Jesus. Romans 3, verses 4 to 5. Not only that, but also we rejoice in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Amen? So to follow someone, You need to know that you are paying attention to them. And how can you pay attention to them if you don't watch where they're going or if you don't listen to what they're saying? So if you're following Jesus, I encourage you, spend dedicated time reading your word, reading the Bible. 
Spend dedicated time both in prayer while you're listening, but also talking to God. Be prepared and be committed to carry your cross, to be like Jesus as you follow in his footsteps and follow his example. Be prepared to feed the hungry, to care for the sick, to visit those who are in prison. Be prepared to say hi to that person who feels a little bit awkward. Be prepared to stand up against that bully in your classroom or your workplace. Be prepared to defend the person who is suffering from abuse. Be prepared to have the joy and the confidence despite uncertainty because we know how the story ends and because we know who wins the fight. Finally, there is this quote from a guy who lived through World War II and Nazi Germany. And he reflected, his name is Johann Christian Becker. He reflected on what suffering meant and how we as the church should interact with that. We shouldn't be afraid of it. He says the church, the new creation of God in the, in the middle of this old creation, is called not only to endure suffering, but also to engage in suffering, to relieve the suffering caused by the world's injustice and idolatry. Therefore, we as the church are not allowed to interpret our own suffering as tragic or meaningless. We are called to engage. We are called to fight against the idolatry, the selfishness, the hoarding, the self-centeredness of this world, and we are called to be that salt and that light to the world so that people can see the difference of who we are because of Christ, so that Christ's light can shine through us to the world. Let's pray. Jesus, you set a high standard. You came from eternal bliss and wholeness and completeness and love as you were with the Father and with the Spirit. But you chose to become limited to enter this world as a baby and to grow up the eternal, all-powerful, all-perfect, all-knowing God, limited to human form. We thank you that you died on the cross for us and that, again, you arose three days later, proving that you conquered sin and death. And we trust in you that you will empower and enable us to walk in your footsteps, to carry out the vision and the mission that you have for us. Because if we are your disciples truly, if we are your followers truly, we will follow in your footsteps and be obedient to the things you have asked us to do, to put you first, despite our weaknesses, despite our shortcomings to put you first so that others may know the joy and the wholeness that being free from the burden of sin through your blood can bring. Amen.